The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to create a life that's intentional and dynamic? Welcome to The Intentional Spirit with your host, Reverend Temple Hayes. Welcome everyone, all of you Intentional Spirits. It's always a, a pleasure to, to be with you and connect with you and to be able to feature incredible uh, path makers and trailblazers and difference makers and wow well I'm telling you (laughs) you better sit down today and have yourself your little notebook pad because you are really in for a treat we're talking about a conversation that most people avoid all their lives called death and today we have the author of the up-and-coming book at Heaven's Door, What Shared Journeys to the Afterlife Teach About Dying Well and Living Better, and published by Simon & Schuster. Yay! Imagine that. Welcome, William Peters, to the show today. I've really been looking forward to having you. Thank you, Temple. Pleasure to be here. Well, one of the things I've noticed about you, and I've actually met you in person as well, you are totally alive, and I think that that's the premise that that we're talking. I think that's the premise with my book, When Did You Die? Eight Steps to Stop Dying Every Day. That Not that I need to promote my book today, but my point being, I think that's something that is a shared common experience that we both feel so strongly about, is that people that address dying, that look at the healthiness of dying, they tend to live in a very healthy way. But for our listening audience, how did you get involved in or your interest peaked when it comes to death? Yeah, that is a great question. And I, well, I had a near-death experience when I was 17 years old. as a high-speed skiing accident. It's a pretty classic near-death experience. Uh, you know, catapulted out of my body, sailed through a beautiful universe, saw my life passing before me, um, realized that I was dying, uh, particularly when I saw the light, and and I pled uh, with God to come back because I had this deep intuitive sense that I had not uh, fulfilled my work here, if you will, my mission. And it was really interesting that I really said that without any real knowing of what I was saying to this loving light source, I said, God, I, 
I've got to go back. I haven't finished what I came for. And I obviously came back. I didn't think about that experience at all. I had another shared death experience, excuse me, another near-death experience about 12 years later with a blood disease, a very different experience. I was just hovering above my body in an ICU um, for many hours. And I can move around in this ICU, look at, you know, other patients there and nurses talking about their private lives and things like that. I, I realized from that experience that I was not my body. And also that there was some, at that point, there was a good deal of curiosity about what is death because I was very close to dying. Certainly in that second experience, the doctor was very clear saying, uh, Mr. Peters, you should have died from this blood disease, but you're still here, um, and we're going to help you heal. So I knew I had crossed over, uh, but I didn't have any. Keep in mind, I was very young at this time. Uh, I think I was about 29, 30 when I had my second near-death experience. So I got very interested in death and dying. Uh, we had a, a fair amount of cancer in our family, um, particularly on the female side. And so I was around death quite a bit. Uh, and, and my mother was very familiar and, and comfortable, if you will, with death and dying. And so she modeled uh, what I've called kind of an, an unusual ease with being with death. And I, and I received some of that. But then I, something happened where my grandmother was dying and I saw her uh, really speaking to other beings um, and having conversations. And I was taking down notes because even though I was right next to her in the room, it was like I wasn't there. This was a conversation she was having and I knew it was important because she was vehement uh, in this conversation. And I took down notes. I went to my, uh, the elder in our family, my, uh, my uncle, and he said to me that everything I had written down had happened to my grandmother um, 50 years previous. And that, that those, the conversation I was, ha that she, I was observing would make sense based on their relationship. So I got, from there, I launched into hospice, a Zen hospice project in San Francisco because I wanted to learn more. In fact, that, that's, that's tame. I was fascinated by what happens at death and realized that my culture, my spiritual tradition had not uh, prepared me in any way for what I was observing. That's how I really got into, you know, death and death and dying in particular. But I saw some things in hospice that I would ca I called at the time mystical experiences I would have, being at the bedside of persons dying and then feeling like I was being lifted out of my body and somehow sharing in this transition with them. I was being shown um, where they were going or what they were doing even moments before uh, they were dying. So this is how I got into the work. Um, and then, you know, I did later, now this was around 2000, I was working with hospice for a number of years, at the turn of the century, as we can say now. Uh, but then in 2011, I, I dedicated my, my life really to helping people understand these end-of-life experiences that are so profound, largely misunderstood. I'm a psychotherapist by training, and so I saw the limitations of mental health um, in dealing with these profound end-of-life experiences. 
uh, we call them shared crossing experiences, and there's a good deal of literature about them. But you know, we've since become, um, I would say the, I think we're recognized. I can say this humbly as as you know, world leaders in a particular type of experience called the shared death experience. And that's where somebody dies and a loved one, a caregiver, sometimes just a bystander, will report that they shared in this transition to a benevolent afterlife and that they observed where they were. They had, they felt like they were with them in some ways. Uh, so there's a, uh, there's a brief history of why and how William got into death and dying and, and the particular interest in uh, the shared crossing experiences. Well, it's, um, uh, you know, hosting this show has been one of my greatest joys because it's, it, it really is fascinating how people like you had this near death experience at 17 and, and then at 30, or, you know, they're close enough, and how it shapeshifts you as an intentional spirit, you know, that you took those experiences in life, and it has crafted you, if you will, molded you to offer this immense work that, like you said, is noted all over the world. And then, of course, when your book comes out, in January now it's projected right um yes I I just see a whole new um because there's Raymond Moody and we've had him on the show a number of years ago and now there's William Peters and I just see this as being um a door like an awakening for for our culture because it's uh you know, even the recent episodes of the pandemic and the, you know, COVID, I mean, that's one of the first things I said was that I'm fascinated that people are shocked that they're just realizing they're going to die. <laughs> you know, it's just absolutely fascinating. And um, we have different wise teachers and shamans that will talk about as a society how we've become desensitized to death you know we put parents and people we love in faraway places and leave them and leave it to a home of strangers to take care of them and um and so to open to open have a divine opening the divine feminine if you will to bring forth um as someone that speaks uh, such as you do with such confidence and competence and experience of data through the years. Anyway, I, you know, I'm one of your biggest fans, so I can go on and on and on. But how did you, because I, up until studying you, I had never heard about the shared death experience. I, I've heard about, you know, obviously the near-death experience. I've, I've heard of people, I've had my own experience of, you know, feeling these angels in the room, like when my dad died. And it was undeniable, uh, the presence of light and, and all of that. But how did you, was it that through your studies you started seeing some common threads or... Are you are you the 
only one that uses the concept of shared death experience because I've never heard anybody else ever talk about it but you. Loaded right. question. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, no, I I hear your question. Um so I when I was in hospice, I started having these experiences when I was working in hospice. And okay. one of the beautiful things about being a hospice worker is your only task, really, um, when you're, I should say the particular hospice I was in, they had um, hospice workers that were volunteers like I was. And that means our job was to go and be on these, you know, six to eight hour shifts just to be with people who are dying. Now, this was at a public hospital, San Francisco, um, Laguna Honda Public Hospital. So you had open war, 24 people, essentially in different stages of dying. Now, this is a beautiful opportunity to be up close and personal with death. And so I was able to be with people as they were dying, and I started having these experiences. And I shared them initially with our supervisor, who was a wonderful man, a, a, a Zen Buddhist for three decades, a veteran of the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco. And I shared this with him, and, and he was rather, um, well, this is what he said to me. He goes, William, phenomena <laughs> rolling by, let it go. Very zen. Mm. And, but, I would, but I would say to him, hey, you know, I really feel like, I know I was like out of my body. Like I was looking down at my body. And he would just say, smiley, he goes, you know, halfway between heaven and hell, a lot of things happen here. You can, bed, you know, Cynthia in bed three needs your assistance. So somewhat um, dismissive, if you will. And, and mm -hmm. this is important to know because you're asking, like, why what, did William, you know, kind of rediscover these experiences? Well, part of it is the reason is that the medical community, the healthcare community, is not particularly welcoming to these experiences. They don't know how to make sense of them. It doesn't fit with, you know, what they understand happens at death, um, which is for most, it's you know, heart rate, heartbeat stops, brain waves stop. This is death. Once the brain that stops functioning, there's no more consciousness. And that's whether, whether healthcare providers believe in that or not, that is the standard uh, teaching, if you will, of the, of the medical community here in allopathic, uh, you know, medical care in the United States and, and beyond in the modern world, I should say. So what you see is a huge resistance to these experiences. But when I started having them over and over again, you know, Temple, you know me. I'm a pretty determined person. I wasn't going to let this go. Uh, but even, even though there wasn't a place for these experiences anywhere in the work I was doing that was welcoming, I held on to them. And when I met Raymond Moody, who you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, really the grandfather of the near-death experience, He'd also heard about the shared death experience because people who would, who would come and hear him speak about the near-death experience would often write to him or communicate with him saying, listen, 
I had an experience very similar to the near-death experience, but I was at the bedside of my mother when she was dying. Raymond kept these stories, and he wrote uh, the seminal book on the shared death experience in 2010 uh, called Glimpses of Eternity. His research, his research was based on um, these stories he heard. Uh, but when I met, met him and we talked about this, and I said, I think I know, uh, I see a, a deeper pattern here, and I would like to research this. And he, was, he still remains very affirming and, and an ally and supportive. In fact, he's going to write one of the endorsements on the cover of uh, my upcoming book. So Raymond was like, I want to help you. I want to support you. you know, let me know. And so I started this project. And what was so amazing about doing this research was it was easy, Temple, to get people to come forward and talk about their experiences. Once I started lecturing locally and then eventually nationally at different conferences, people were everywhere. Like they'd come up to me after a talk, and it was often a couple dozen people either talk, wanted to talk to me right away, or if they had to move on, they'd hand me a card, they'd write personal notes, they'd look for me at these conferences. I mean, it was clear to me that these experiences are happening all over the place, and yet people don't feel comfortable to share them or don't have a, a place, a context where they can share them that's safe and honoring. So when I started doing my research, I had tons of data, as we say. They're, they're these wonderful people who we do in-depth interviews with, and, and increasingly, a pattern was emerging. And the pattern is profound in the sense that um, it's undeniable that there is a landscape that leads from this human existence into and across a beautiful veil filled with, you know, all sorts of you know, mystical experiences, not just in the physical realm, but, you know, the encountering relatives and deceased relatives and other elevated beings. The process seems to be um, guided by a loving force. And you, you can have past life reviews and all sorts of material um, that's just fascinating to you. So I started charting all this and created the first typologies, which we can go into later or not. But the basic idea is that you can have these at a bedside. You can be a loved one remotely and still have a shared death experience. In fact, we find that more people are away from the bedside when they have these experiences. You can have them at the time of death directly or sometime before or sometime or after. And more than one person can have these. So this is the pattern that emerged, the first basic pattern or typology. And once we started putting this out and teaching it, people started flowing in and saying, I had one uh, of these when I was in you know, Hawaii and my father was dying in you know, Florida. So this is how we got into it. Um, I've since, you know, hired some researchers to really formalize this um, and do some academic medical journal articles. So um, that was necessary to prove the pattern.
Um, so I think that's how I got into it. That's that's why I think, and it's still surprising to me why there wasn't someone else before me who gathered this. Raymond got it for sure, uh, but he wasn't interested in doing research on it. But I think the fact that I've had these near-death experiences, the landscape is the same. Every experience you have is different, but the general landscape is the same, and it feels the same. Um, so I I knew about this already. I wasn't going to doubt myself. And now that I've had, you know, many dozens of these experiences, um, I feel uh, overly confident perhaps in this, ready to kind of take on the naysayers because there are a number of them, but decreasing in numbers, I should say, because I, I don't think, I think people know about these experiences. They just don't know how to categorize them. Well, the more naysayers, the better, um, the more true your, your experience is, right? I mean, that's a good thing because <laughs> it means that you're pushing the envelope and it obviously we're, we're really due. We're ready for it to be pushed, you know? And, um, so I'm very confident as well in your in your work and what you're doing and you have data you know like you said you have you have research now how does this shift is it when a when a person has a shared death experience with a loved one or a friend i mean is it not that they're doing something to get something but one thing would be that they're like sacred they're of sacred service and that's more than plenty of course in that space but does it notably change them does it give them more energy do um do you does the research then go on to show how certain people have made a change in their lives or they have a different whole feeling about living or that's a loaded question but I'm just curious about what that what that does for you know yeah yeah i I think what you're asking is what's the impact upon the share death experiencer mm-hmm. and and though and what we have found and by the way i as I hear your question, which is so important because as a psychotherapist working with people at end of life, my goal is to alleviate suffering and to give them the best end of life experience they can have knowing that someone they love is going to be leaving them. And the shared death experience in my research offers the most desirable, most beneficial, I dare say glorious end of life experience. And what they receive is a sense that their loved one is alive and well in a benevolent afterlife. If that's a I don't like the term afterlife, but it does work in some other dimension that, that suggests that their loved one has continued on and is living somewhere else and that place as they experience that and as it is communicated to them by their 
a departing loved one is, quite frankly, better than earth. And that's what people will say is that, wow, I mean, my, I miss my, you know, my loved one, but he or she is in a great place. I know it. I felt it. I sensed it. In some ways, I saw it. Um, so there's the first major benefit is the knowing that your, your loved one is alive and well in a, in a wonderful place. Uh, and also that any fear or anxiety about death uh, is alleviated from this experience. People will just state, I no longer fear death. I, am, I want to live my life fully here, but I'm not afraid of death anymore. Uh, and certainly wow. the obvious here is they believe that they're going on to a benevolent afterlife and that they will see their loved ones again. Uh, so these are all real important uh, teachings, if you will, that come from the experience. And what we also see is that people really get a renewed sense for their life purpose. They seem to get a deeper understanding for what their human life is or even what a human life is for. They see it sitting in a larger context of existence, if you will, soul existence. This is a the human experience is a particular experience that lives inside a larger experience. You might want to say a larger experience of the soul, if you will. And, and they realize it is, it, they need to take advantage of this time. And we see significant changes, both in terms of career choices, um, who they spend time with, partners, um, behaviors. They tend to get a, little, a lot more, a lot healthier in a certain way. So those are the things we see. Uh, and also, we also, I should say, this is important because I'm sure your audience would, is asking this. Um, all, people come back often reporting that they've developed a, a, a psychical or intuitive gift. They see things um, beyond what they saw before. They seem to empathically sense what's going on around them and they feel more spiritual. So one question we get is, well, do certain people, certain types of people have these experiences? No, we don't see that certain types of people have them, whether you're religious, non-religious, you know, secular, what have you. We don't see beliefs or uh, particular, certainly not religious practices in a certain way um, leading to them. Uh, however, I will say this, the vast majority of our experiencers and our research uh, do have um, mindfulness practices in a certain way, whether they pray or whether they um, are, um, they do flow practices. Like some people wouldn't consider themselves to be religious or spiritual, but we're going to tune right uh, into that when we come right back. Everyone, I'm talking to William Peters. You can go to his website sharedcrossing.com and thank you for tuning in and we'll be right back after this short break experience the difference unity online radio the voice of an awakening world Welcome back to The Intentional Spirit, 
with Reverend Temple Hayes. And welcome back, everyone. And we're talking about one of my favorite subjects of all time, death and life and how they coexist together. And we're talking today to William Peters. You can go to his website, sharedacrossing.com. I would urge you to do so and pre-order his book at Heaven's Door, What Shared Journeys to the Afterlife Teach About Dying Well and Living Better. And it's coming out by Simon & Schuster on January the 11th, 2022. So right around the right around the corner. Well, what a wonderful conversation we're having, William. And I'm just fascinated with your work and your, your office, your uh, shared crossing research is uh, based out of Santa Barbara, California. It is. Yeah, this is where I live. And it's really interesting that I landed in Santa Barbara after having spent some time living in, uh, actually Brazil for a number of years. And so relocated here. And this community has a lot of um, retirees. So a lot of um, elderly people who are looking at end of life. And so it was a perfect fit for me because I started, you know, doing my research and have my private practice here as a psychotherapist and grief and bereavement. And it just grew naturally. Once I started teaching about the shared, these shared death experiences and other experiences that happen around death and dying and helping people prepare for what we call conscious, connected, and loving end-of-life experiences, because that's one of the things that the Shared Crossing Project is about. That's kind of our mission is to really help people uh, get more aware and conscious about what it, what it's, what's required to have a, a good death, if you will. So this has been a community where the work started have lots of people uh, involved, uh, but we've grown nationally. Um, But I'm really grateful to be in Santa Barbara because this was a a wonderful launch pad for the work that is now, you know, now has become uh, national and even international because, hey, people are dying all over the world. And I am stunned when I get uh, emails from people in, you know, Sweden and Australia, New Zealand and Germany and France, you know, uh, Indonesia as well. I got one just the other day from Indonesia and India as well. People, the word is getting out, and when they see hear about these experiences, the, what we what we receive is the sense of I had no idea this existed. I had this, and I didn't know, but I got referred to it by a friend, and and I'm so glad you're existing, uh, you exist, and I'd like to share my experience with you, and here it is, and you know. You know, just as we're on this topic of people who may be listening who've had these experiences, we are still doing our research. And so if you've had an experience, uh, you can go to our website and go to the contact area. And there's a there's a, a form there, if you will. It's called the Share Crossing Testimonial Guide. And it, it walks you through how you can share your experience with us in a way that uh, helps us understand your experience, and then we'll reach out to you um, and follow up in some way. Um, but we really appreciate the people when they do reach out because it really helps the the research. And what it really does is it's part of a movement that normalizes these uh, profound, mystical, and transformative experiences. Um, 
And that's really one of our goals as well, to really advocate for these experiences so that loved ones, family members, know that if they have these, that they're healthy and normal and, and they're gifts, they're beautiful gifts. So we, you know, we've already talked about the benefits of these. Um, so yeah, just one other point I wanted to follow up on, and that is that anybody can have these experiences, but what we find in, in terms of those who have them more often is that they tend to be either in a flow state, as we call it, like they're either driving a car or gardening or even shopping or cooking. Their, their mind is open and receptive. And that seems to be, and that sounds bizarre because you're not going to be at a bedside when you can have them. You can certainly have them at a bedside. But over two-thirds of our experiences come from people that are um, not at the bedside. These are remote shared death experiences. So people can be just doing the course of their day, and if they're in a, what we call an open receptive state, they will often be visited right in and around the time of a loved one dying and have you know, the shared death experience in, in one of its various forms. Um, so that's how we kind of know people are open. Now, that being said, we do have a train, we do have training programs to help people, uh, who really want to learn how to have a, a shared death experience with their loved ones. And that's called a pathway program. It's on our website, but what we see a years down the road, um, from our interviewees, our, our experiencers, they almost always say this that experience resulted in me becoming more spiritual. And if they were religious or not, it doesn't really make a difference. They report that they're more spiritual. And they often say, I feel like I'm spiritual, but not religious. There's something about this experience that bursts through our, um, you know, our, our religions, our, um, our belief systems. It's bigger than that. And that's not to say anything um, you know, disparaging about religion. Religion has its place, um, but it's hard for any religion to capture the grandeur, the awesomeness of this journey, the shared death experience of journeying from this life into our next, next existence. So people will say, you know, I feel like I'm much more spiritual. I'm a spiritual being as a result. I really know that now. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I I can truly see that there are, you know, some religions that are very adamant that teach you're born, you're born into original sin and you repent your whole life and then you die and that's it. And there is no other life or, you know, anything like that. So I it's it's a push out of that box, you know. An, an opening uh, for people to be able to see different layers of the, as we use the words, you know, afterlife and knowing this isn't all there is. And that's very powerful. It requires people to give up some of the boxes, you know, that they've been, if you will, stuck in or have bought into or, you know, whatever. So um, I can, I can see where it, has an opening, you know, one of the, to me, one of the, the best movies of all times, um, is defending your life with, um, Shirley MacLaine and Rip Torn. I don't know if you ever saw that, but it, um, uh, was really 
fascinating. Did you see that? I Albert? did see it. Yeah. And, okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, you know, obviously there's the, one of the big features of that movie amongst the many is the life review. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, uh, you know, that, that in this case, I don't remember who, I just, I remember a number of people in it, but I did remember the, the kind of like a, um, a hearing, if you will, almost a judicial process about mm-hmm. what, Meryl what you Street did in your life. Meryl Streep was one of them. Meryl yeah. Streep was one of yeah. the characters. And everything yeah. about her review was all fluffy and beautiful. <laughs> and then the guy exactly. that was with her, everything wasn't <laughs> fluffy and beautiful. <laughs> but, yeah, they went yeah, before and, and, a panel, know, like a court. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And, and I think, you know, I don't think, I know in our research, that that level of review and term that you you often I want to say in about twelve to fifteen percent of our cases I'm not exactly sure that there is a life review uh, that is observed by the experiencer. In other words, it's it's the life review of the person dying, and they get they're privy to the details of their life. Uh, oftentimes learning things they hadn't even known about their, presumably their loved one who's transitioning. Um, and in some cases, this is quite interesting. Not This is like, I think we have this in maybe, you know, 4% of our cases, in that less than 5%, the actual experiencer will have a review of their life, their own life. And so that's interesting. And mm. then there's also a third type, which is the review will be, a review of their life together. So the experiencer, the shared death experiencer, and the person transitioning, they, the, the experiencer will see their life together, the key moments uh, of their life. So there's really three types of life reviews that, are, that we've seen in our research, the life review of the person dying, the life review of the person dying and the experiencer, caregiver, loved one, their life together, and then that of the experiencer, which is really interesting because that experiencer is not dying. They just seem to be entered into this, you know, I call it the vortex of transition. Uh, and there's something about that, that space that in, a, you know, like I said, a small percentage of people, they will, um, they will receive a review of their life that most of them find extremely helpful. Uh, in some cases, most cases, it's also revealing the need for change, <laughs> the need for transformation now. Uh, so it's a gift, but it's often a, um, you know, a clear teacher in a certain way. So it's stern and to the point, and it can offer people a, a redirect that they have this review Absolutely. that shows them a possibility of redirecting where they're headed and then they can make change. Spot on. That's exactly Mm -hmm. what it is, Temple. Okay. And for the, for the people that are, are, are moving on, did they, did they give any insight as to 
I mean, are, are they going to just take those changes into their next incarnation or? You know, um, most of the time, and most what we see in our research is the person transitioning is really focused on the transition. And, Got it. And, so, and, and, and sometimes, take a step back. Sometimes the transition is obvious um, in the sense that the, the dying person is just moving through, headed towards the light. Um, and I should say that in 50% of the cases, um, the, the dying will appear in some form to the experiencer. So um, that's who they see. And so they get they're they're privy to the to they're witnessing where this where their departing loved one is and where they're going, but most of the time what you what the experiencers report is that the their departing loved one is tired, um, not so I mean not they're happy and they're content, but oftentimes they're being kind of pulled along. And what matters is the progression through this journey headed to the light. Uh, and that's the focal point. So, yes, there is a life review that is observed oftentimes um, by the experiencer, the life review of the person dying. But what I've learned in, in my studies is that that is the first of many life reviews that will occur for all of us as we transition. This life review seems to be um, in some way perhaps for the experiencer. In other words, uh, they're seeing things that are relevant to them in a certain way. And oftentimes what we see is that what they'll experience, what they'll, what they'll see is, and oftentimes it's projected almost as a movie, a panoramic movie, what they'll see is things about their the dying that help the surviving loved one make sense of who they were. Maybe there were some idiosyncratic or harmful behaviors or experiences that they had or observed, and somehow they get explained in a way that allows the experiencer, surviving loved one, to have more compassion and understanding for the departed loved one. Uh, so there's a purpose behind it. It's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> I just love the work you're doing. That's really incredible. Um, you had mentioned along the way that you were present with your dad. Your your dad transitioned last year. Yes, uh, a year ago, September twenty second, my my father died. He was in a memory care center. Uh, this was, if you remember, in the midst of COVID, we were quite fortunate that COVID had dropped just recently to allow, um, you know, my two siblings and mother to be with him as he transitioned. And I was, um, I want to say, gifted with uh, a shared death experience with him. Now, I will say, if I'm around somebody who's dying, if I'm in that I say vortex, that field, if you will, I tend to naturally go into that space 
um, and have a shared death experience in different ways. Um, so I'm one of the, one of those persons who I can be working with someone, not even be a loved one, but I can be a caregiver or just a bystander who's maybe helping a family member, you know, something like that. And I tend to be able to pick up um, on some of these elements, some of these features of a shared death experience. In this case, being my own father, I was uh, brought right into a scene where I saw my father. I, uh, I actually didn't see my father, which is interesting. I saw my grandmother, my grandmother, and my aunt, and I sensed and heard other relatives uh, and some of my father's early uh, childhood friends who had predeceased. I, I sensed that, and I I also um, was shown by my grandmother and aunt because I kept asking, "He's ready to go. Um, why isn't he leaving? I mean, you know, he's he's." ready here. Um, and I should note that my father had had Alzheimer's for about five years and was, was ready. Um, and so uh, they alerted me uh, and certainly they kind of directed my attention. You know, so much of this communication is telepathic, if you will, but they looked up as if to say, we're not in charge of when he, your father dies. Uh, we're not in charge of that process, but there is a force that is and when they looked over at it, is it to say he or it or is responsible for this? And I could not see this force, if you will, but I could sense it. And that, and I've identified that loving, guiding, often stern, strict, um, demanding, even pushy force as the conductor. That force is conducting, orchestrating, choreographing, if you will, the transition of, of the dying into the next dimension where the welcoming party awaits. It was clear to me that my, you know, my relatives were there to greet my father. They had gathered to greet my father. This is a feature we see in the shared death experience. It's called the greeting party, often rel deceased relatives and friends there to warmly welcome the dying as they, you know, come home in a certain way. So for my father, um, I saw this orchestration uh, and I felt the conductor doing his work. And then finally I saw uh, a, uh, a channel of light coming down, almost connecting to my father. And I was aware that he, my father was going to travel up that light once it connected to him. And, but uh, something happened in the room uh, some people came into the room to assist and I, and I lost my connection with that, uh, that particular scene. But after my father died, I should say that was about 20 minutes before my father died. And another, about another, I want to say half an hour, 45 minutes after my father died, I was alone with him in the room. Everyone left and I had a life review with him. I was saying goodbye to him. I had a, you know, I had a difficult relationship with my father, I should say. Um, he was a, a businessman, and I was in, interested in, in, in that world. And I was more um, more naturally, I was a psychotherapist. I was into spiritual um, matters, if you will. So we didn't, oh, we didn't see eye to eye very well. It's hard for him to see, um, appreciate me. He didn't understand what, what mattered to me. Uh, but in this life review with him, I was sitting with him saying, I wish you well. I'm sorry we didn't connect as well as I would have wanted. And instantly I was dropped into another space and there I saw the scenes of our life together and 
and and scenes I could not even remember. And and there was, you know, it was highlighting the, the ups and downs of our life. But what I was really left with was there were some scenes where we were actually happy together, that there were times when I could feel his, his him being proud of me. Um, and, and that was healing for me and, and deeply healing, I should say. And so, um, and so, yeah, I'm just, as I'm saying this, I realized that is the, one of the final, that is actually the final chapter in, in the book. Cause I just was finishing writing that the book when that happened. And I really felt it was a gift from him affirming my life that he was going to give me this last chapter um in my exploration of this you know this amazing uh, shared death experience so yeah that's my experience with my father and definitely uh, one of the most meaningful shared death experiences i've had wow that's powerful well i had heard years ago um that in hospice it stated that people die the way they live. Is there any truth to that at all? As far as when, you know, a level of acceptance, a level of letting go. And I've sat by a few bedsides myself as a spiritual leader. And some people tend to just flow and they're relaxed and other people seem to I don't want to say fight, but, you know, resist the process. Is it that for some people, just that transition is just, it's difficult or painful or loaded question, yes. I guess. I, yeah, no, I mean, you, I, I think you said it well. I, I, I do think there is some truth to people in a, I wouldn't say people die as they lived, but I would say this. If people have prepared for their end of life, their death and dying, what that preparation means is that they've addressed their unfinished business with people. So they've reconciled, at least for themselves and if possible with others, any um, – you know, any unfinished business, you know, discord, conflict. Uh, if people, when people are able to do that, they, their hooks to this world um, diminish, they dissolve. And so they, their death seems to be easier. Now, if you have a lot of unfinished business and you're deemed to work things out with people, um, the, that can manifest as, uncomfortable emotions, irritation in the body. You know, as we're dying, our, we're, our, we're losing our strength. And so the emotional strength or the psychic strength to, to support an ego diminishes. So you can't, you can't deny and defend yourself uh, and avoid things the way you could during your life. All of us can do this. You know, all of us defend ourselves against all sorts of things. Our, our, our views of things kind of drop away and truth emerges and and in the truth if there's things that you regret or that were harmful to yourself and others they will come up and serve as hooks to keep people here i often find myself as a hospice worker and working in end of life as temple you do as well that sometimes someone's just hanging on and i just naturally say is there somebody 
is there a relative, a loved one, a family member that has he hasn't said goodbye to or they have unfinished business? And invariably, eyes will roll and say, well, we got an estranged son or there's this person, da-da-da. And you bring that person in or get them on the phone and a little just thank you, I, you know, I, I forgive you, you forgive me, I wish you well, I'm sorry. You know, doesn't need to, doesn't need to be a big I love you, but some healing and often, you know, minutes, hours after those reconciliations, death, dying process begins, and it's then soon thereafter um, a transition takes place that is that is allowed, not held up, not encumbered by these unfin this unfinished business of people. Mm. <clears throat> Oh my! Well, you must be beyond excited about the the book coming out. Are we really looking at January? You think? January eleventh. Yeah, that's they're pretty. Um, Simon Schuster has a number of books. I know I'm 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 on a schedule with them, which is a wonderful schedule. I love. I've been so blessed to work with such professionals in publishing. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, they're they're going to hold to this. Um, they've waited. Well, I will tell you that. This book was ready a while ago, and um, they waited. They wanted to do this at a time um, that would be right. They think that the winter time after the holidays, after people have spent time with their family members, and you're thinking about the health and well-being of your loved ones, they want to drop this book into that more reflective winter time uh, space. So, well, I I see it very being. Thoughtful extremely extremely successful for you everyone we're talking to william peters you can go to his website sharedcrossing.com you can find out how to be certified to be there for someone else as a as shared crossing and you can also uh, leave your stories about your own experiences. I'm Temple Hayes and it's been a pleasure having you today and thank you so much for staying in touch. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Laura Worcester, host of the Intuitive Life Podcast. As an intuitive medium and teacher working with the world of spirit, I love to share the peace that comes with the awareness that our departed loved ones are still with us. And I also love to help people explore what it means to live an intuitively led life. Start listening now on mindbodyspirit.fm or wherever you get your podcasts.